0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good
1: morning. 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 Wow. All the uh, emotions, feelings right now. So this Dharma Talk is uh, Ended up being the third in a series on the question, what is Zen practice? And it's kind of, I think it's hilarious, but it's like, what do we talk about here? That's all we (laughs) We talk about. (laughs) What is Zen practice? How uh, How do we live our lives and what does Zen, how does Zen practice inform and direct and nourish and encourage and challenge and all of that? So the, uh, during my first talk, I thought that was going to be like just a one-and-done, like, okay, you're the, what are the fundamentals of Zen practice? And I didn't get through what I wanted to get through. And then I did a second talk, and I didn't get through <laughs> uh, what I wanted to get through. I mean, I'll never, be, I'll never be done, right? We'll never be done with this question. But in particular, I had a couple Zen stories, and that's the, kind of the focus of this talk is to talk about some Zen stories. Um, which I will do, maybe. <laughs> maybe I'll get to them. But I wanted to just start uh, by acknowledging you know, it's been, I think, two, three weeks since my last talk. And in this last three weeks, so much has happened in the world, in our country. Looking back, the last two Dharma Talks intervening between the last one I gave and this one, we had Daigon Gator come in and uh, give a workshop and a Dharma Talk on the topic of grief and loss. Who knew that on that very same day in Buffalo, New York, there would be a mass shooting propelled by hatred. That 10 lives would be lost. And who knew that the following week, uh, Joel and I would lose our 18-year-old cat, which many times people say, oh, it's just a cat. That cat, Lucy, was uh, losing her is like having a whole, like having a chunk of your heart ripped out. And then four days ago, the unspeakable tragedy of what happened in Nuvalde, Texas. And in between all of that too, we had Pat's Dharma talk on the topic of impermanence. So what is Zen practice? How do we practice with all of this suffering? unbelievable Uh, just unbelievable and yet sometimes I hear people say well could have seen that coming look at our gun laws look at this look at that but all of us we try to make sense of it (laughs) right is that what we try to do as humans we try and make some sense maybe if we can't make sense we try to sit in the discomfort of the senselessness But we are always left with the question, uh, what is the source of the activity that follows? People say, what do we need to do? We need to do something, something needs to be done. Of course, that feeling is with all of us. Something needs to be done. And sometimes I would say, when we invite that question in, when we come from that question of needing to do something, we don't really check in with our heart and mind and what's happening there first. It can come from a place of reactivity, of all of the karmic conditioning of being uh, raised in this country, No matter what background you come from, whatever political background you have, your family background, all of it comes to play. And so when we ask the question, when we turn to the question, which is what I think we're doing when we sit zazen, we turn to this question of deep investigation in what's in my body and mind. What is coming up now? What is happening here? And then from that place, action may happen. Inaction may happen. Over these past uh, two weeks, I've been uh, uh, offering the community some trainings in how to take care of our ceremonies. And to me, this is a deep love of taking care, taking care of the thing that is to me quite precious, which is this practice of just sitting and being without fear, turning to what towards what's happening in this body and mind, in this moment. Because it's very easy to leap to the next thing and skip over the checking in with ourselves to actually create space without distraction where we set down our agendas and our thoughts about what we should or should not do. In Zazen, we face a blank wall. We face ourselves. We accept everything that happens in our body, in our mind. We don't turn away from any of it. We don't indulge in any of it. We sit with the pain that comes up. We sit with the desire, the hatred, the greed, all of it, we sit with it. And yet, the response to others' suffering, please never just tell people, oh, just sit with it. <laughs> right, because it doesn't reach it. And yet we know, those of us who uh, who have this practice as a refuge, we know that no matter what happens when we sit with it, Whether we feel agitated, or we feel disturbed, or we feel elated, we're seeking after this bliss state, Mm -hmm. we want to make it all better, we think we're becoming Buddhas by sitting. When we sit, we're able to open our hearts and minds to all of it. And sometimes, I don't know if you've had this experience where while sitting, You feel like you just can't stand it. You want to leap off your cushion and run out of the Zendo screaming, maybe. And Maybe if you're sitting at home, you might uh, have set an intention, I'm going to sit for 20 minutes. And maybe uh, five minutes into the period that you're into your 20 minutes, you're like, yeah, never mind. I'm going to go, go, you know, and what is it that you have to do? Clean the cabinet or make dinner, you know, work on your talk. It's so easy to shortchange the time that we carve out to just be with what's happening now. Now, it's not just in formal zazen that we can ask this question. It's every moment of our lives, every moment, every day, we can turn to that question, what's happening now? I like to call it one breath zazen in the midst of a day, just to stop. Stop the churn, the autopilot, the frantic energy, the do, 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 get done, get done, check off the list. Just to stop for one moment and fully inhale whatever's happening and fully exhale, let it go. So in this last two weeks, um, training doans and would-be doans. These are the these are the ceremonial attendants, the Zen hall attendants. They're the ones who take care of the altars. They sift the ash. They ring bells. They strike wooden blocks. They they watch the time. They use their voices to lead chanting. They strike the drum. And they're doing it. As a, as a concerted effort, right? all this effort going into it, and within the Zazen mind of when you're asked to do something like that, or when you volunteer to do something like that, of course, all this stuff comes up, right? Fear of doing it wrong, fear of uh, not being able to speak when the time comes to announce the chant, such, so so small, such small things. And yet, for those of you who have done, stepped into these roles, in whatever capacity, you know what I'm talking about, right? When you step into this role, it becomes the most important thing in that moment, when you're handing that incense, right? This total focus and presence, all complete body and mind, putting yourself completely, fully into the activity at hand with all your stuff. What a beautiful practice. And then to do it in public with others who are practicing. What an inspiration. An inspiration when you do it well, an inspiration when you fail or you fail, right? You balk, you choke, you miss the bell, you you know you stumble when you're coming into the Zendo. All of it. This practice is practicing with. When things go well, when things don't go well. Do you sit because you want to be enlightened? Do you sit for the peace of mind you think it will bring? Do you sit because you love zazen? Do you sit because you can't stand zazen and you know there's something to something there? All of those answers are equally true and valid. Why do we sit? Why do we practice? What is this practice? So the last two talks, I talked a lot about Zazen practice and then taking Zazen, that Zazen quality of really this carving out of uh, carving a space that where the primary activity is no longer selfing. How is this going to affect me? What's this going to do? Is this going to raise my salary? Is it going to lower my salary? The sort of pros and cons that we're constantly going on in our life, right? When we live in the world according to me, it becomes very narrow. When we turn to living for the benefit of all beings, when we sit in silence and we listen carefully to our heart, to our mind without judgment, we open ourselves to the infinity of this present moment. And what unfolds may be many, many different things, but I think oftentimes what unfolds is a deep and profound gratitude for this life. So I wanted to get to some of these Zen stories as a uh, another description of what is Zen practice. So I think I mentioned in my first talk, somebody had sent a question onto the contact AZC website. There's like a there's a web page. that says like you know, contact AZC, and you can send a you know send an email to the administrator. Our administrator Maida gets that, and sometimes she's like oh, this is an easy answer, I can answer this. Another time she's like, I don't know about this. <laughs> so I had mentioned that somebody had uh, wrote in to this uh, Contact ACC um, search, search function on our website, and they asked the question, how important is it to study the lineage? You know, This person had obviously read somewhere that the lineage in Zen is incredibly important, and it is. And yet, in terms of like, if I were, if a newcomer were to come and say, "Where should I start? Where should I start my practice?" Or I've gone to the beginner's instruction. What do I do next? Right? These are the kinds of questions that that folks often have. Really good questions. What's next? Right. Well, studying the lineage may be a great place to go next, but it may not. <laughs> it may depend on your proclivities. However, the next step is always come back to the Zendo and sit. And if you feel compelled to share this practice with others and to help support it for the community, for the benefit of other people's practice, you might start uh, really paying attention to things that happen around here and the uh, services and work days and you might show up for those. Right. But always, you come back to the Zen when you sit endlessly. So, I was reflecting about this question of the importance of Zen lineage, and I'm going to talk about a couple. I'm going to give us a couple stories from our koan collection, one of our many the many koan collections. It's actually from the Rinzai, mostly from the Rinzai koan collection, because the teacher that I'm going to talk about primarily is a Rinzai teacher not-too-distant cousin from the Soto lineage. Um, but I'd like to talk to you today about to share some of the stories of Master Matsu, otherwise known in, Je- in Japanese Basso. So Matsu was 8th uh, century Zen master who was known for uh, known for his uh, demeanor, his physical stature. Apparently he had a tongue that could go cover them his nose, <laughs> um, <laughs> some interesting details. He was the uh, uh, student of Nanyue Rong, who was a student of our sixth ancestor, Neng. These are big names in, in Zen. He's a Dharma friend and contemporary of our own uh, Shirto. Sekito Kisen, and they lived and practiced in the same, in the same area in China. So a couple of uh, stories, I'll tell a couple stories about him. One day, Nanyue, or Nangaku, visited Matsu's hut. Matsu stood and greeted him. Nanyue asked, what have you been doing recently? That was a trick question. (laughs) Matsu replied, I've done nothing but sit in Zazen. Then uh, Nanyue asked, why do you continually sit in Zazen? Matsu answered, I sit in Zazen in order to become a Buddha. Whereupon Nanyue looked around and saw a little roof, a roof tile, a ceramic roof tile, picked it up and started rubbing it. You all know the story? I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> so Matsu watched his teacher do this and was like, Master, what, what are you doing? Nanue answered, I'm polishing this tire, tile. Mm-hmm. Matsu asked, well, why are you polishing the tile? Nanue said, to make a mirror. Sometimes it's translated, to make a jewel. Matsu looked confused. Mm-hmm. Master, how can you make a mirror by polishing a tile? And Nanyue replied, How can you become a Buddha by sitting? So what's what's the meaning of this? What is Nanyue getting at with his student Matsu? In Zen, we have this... uh, particularly in, I think particularly in Soto Zen, but maybe some of you Rinzai practitioners out there can correct me, but there's a very strong uh, rhetoric in Zen around not having any gaining idea. So, let me say that again, not having a gaining idea, not having something that you're trying to strive for, something that you're aiming towards, a goal, imagine if you didn't have any goals in your entire life? What would you do? How would you function? So what a conundrum. How do you not have any gaining idea? And why? Why not have any gaining idea? So Suzuki Roshi, uh, at one, one of his lectures, he says, if we have a gaining idea, we cannot practice Buddhism which is something beyond our ordinary purpose of life. Usually our conscious activity is directed towards some merit or some result. We are expecting result, whatever we do. But there may be difference. There may be two cases. One, you expect result after doing something, and you expect the result within your activity. There is. There may be two cases. To practice Zazen, because of the interest in practicing Zazen, is also, strictly speaking, a gaining idea. Of course, to expect something after you pra- your practice, this is, of course, gaining idea. If you practice Zazen, you will be healthy, or you will have some mystical power, like some magic. This, of course, is not Zen.
2: <laughs>
1: Maybe you will attain some results, but we do not practice for the sake of the wonderful result we will have. But it it does. It does not mean that Zazen, that Zazen practice has no advantage. It has some. It will result in something good for you, actually. haha. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but we do not practice it for the sake of the result we will have. And we should be ashamed of to practice Zen, which is to prote- practice religious practice with a gaining idea. So this gaining idea, the uh, Zen master... Koto very famous for uh, his teachings on not having a gaining idea. Interestingly, soto Kowaki, you know, he spoke about zazen as being good for nothing. He really emphasized good-for-nothing zazen. As absolutely having no value in any sense of progress, benefit, or payback. Why? Why focus on that? He said, because it takes you out of the world of loss and gain, it should be practiced. Zazen takes you out of the, lo- the world of gain and loss, pros and cons, good and bad. Because of that, it should be practiced. This idea, mushotoku, no gaining idea. Looking at Kodosuaki's early, uh, early, early practice as a young priest, he was, he's admittedly, he's, was intent on becoming enlightened. Everything he did was in service of becoming enlightened. His own teacher Fueko Fu Eoka asked him what the reason was for all this intensity that, that Kodoswaki had. Sawaki answered, "Because I want to attain Satori." similar to Matsu. Fueko said, you're like someone with a piece of shit on his nose, running around wondering who farted. <laughs> <laughs> so, next time you come to Zaza, I'm thinking you're going to make a Buddha.
0: <laughs>
1: Wipe your face. <laughs> on the other hand, Kodoswaki also said, Practice Zazen tenaciously, and you are Buddhas. Sawaki, speaking of himself, is always a deluded person. However, Zazen seeps into Sawaki's blood, drop by drop, making him a Buddha. How joyful. So, both. No gaining idea, and yet, of course, one of the most important things in terms of, like, what's your effort? Oftentimes people say, what's the right effort? This is a huge question in Zen. What's right effort? With regard to Zazen, as uh, for people who are newly starting out on their practice, right effort basically is the effort it takes to just get your butt on the cushion. <laughs> right Then once you've got that, that's the right effort in uh, the chant that we do from Dogen Zenji's Ben wa We chant every alternating Tuesday, uh, the self-receiving and employing samadhi. And in that uh, fascicle that he wrote that we, we chant on alternate Tuesdays in the mornings. In that fascicle, Dogen talks about this as uh, Zazen, as, um, you know, there's all these different things that you can think of as being part of Zen practice. Meeting with a teacher. Talked about that in the first time of talk, I think, quite a bit. Offering incense, bowing, chanting, making, uh, uh, practicing repentance, taking refuge. He said, before all of these things, just sit, just to sit down and be with what's happening. So continuing on with Matsu, Who also said so that was uh, the first one was Matsu as a I think probably a young student then in another case later on Daime asks Matsu in all earnestness what is Buddha what is awakening Matsu answered this very mind is Buddha this very mind or sometimes he also, later on in other uh, discussions, he says, ordinary mind is Buddha. Wow, that's kind of hard to grasp. You mean this mind, the one I've got, that's full of grasping and clinging and desire and attachment? This very mind is Buddha. Now, there's a lot of discussion in Zen over the centuries on the meaning of this, Dogen commented and said, when they hear tell of mind itself, what the ignorance suppose it means is that ordinary people's thinking awareness, yeah. thinking awareness, certain kind of awareness, right? the thinking awareness, or sometimes called discriminating awareness, the ordinary pe- people's thinking awareness without awakened inspira- aspiration for enlightenment is itself Buddha. This is a consequence of never having met an enlightened teacher. So Dogen's emphasizing, maybe it's not the ordinary mind, just the ordinary, what we call ordinary mind, which is the mind that uh, maybe, uh, some of you call it monkey mind, the chattering mind that uh, gets caught up in this thing over here and that thing over there that seeks to figure out what would be the best situation for me, for the people I love, for this country, for this world system. Yamada, uh, one of the teachers who, so if you read koans, you'll see like the usual, the case, which I read to you, you know, what is Buddha? Ordinary mind is Buddha, that's the koan. And then, there's all the commentaries, there's all the teachers that jump in and weigh in. And that's where some of the fun, a lot of the fun is too. Yamada's comment, Shakyamuni Buddha's great enlightenment was simply the realization that the whole universe is one and empty. The truth realized by all the past, present, and future Buddhas is identical to Shakyamuni's realization. In empty oneness, there is no duality. It transcends all dualistic opposition, just one at every point of time and space. This oneness is sometimes called Mu. Sometimes the sound of one hand. Sometimes one's primal face before one's parents were born. Or sometimes the subtle Dharma the subtle mind of nirvana, mind, one mind, Buddha, our essential nature, and so forth. All these names, however, are only symbols or labels for this empty oneness. Enlightenment is nothing other than grasping this oneness by living experience. Everything you see and hear and touch and feel and think is nothing but mind. Although it may move as greed, Anger or folly or wanting to eat or love or hate. All these are no other than mind. One of Matsu's disciples, Nanchuan, another story. Choshu, Zhao Shu, earnestly asked Nanchuan, what is the way? Nanchuan said Ordinary mind is the way. Shu said, should I direct myself toward it or not? Nanjuan said, if you try to turn toward it, you go against it. Shu said, if I do not turn toward it, how can I know that it's the way? Nanjuan said, the way does not belong to knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is blank consciousness. When you have really reached the true way beyond all doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as the empty firmament. How can it be talked about on a level of right or wrong? And at these words, Jiao Chu was suddenly enlightened. So this ordinary mind, what does it include? Does it require? An aspiration to enlightenment, as Dogen mentions in his commentary? Is it the ordinary mind of wanting and not wanting? Thinking and uh, discriminating? Robert Aitken says, This constant ordinary is not the commonplace mind of self-centered preoccupation. Selfish conduct, speech, and thought obscures the vast moonlit mind of Nanchuan. Nanchuan is pointing to transformation here. Standing up before realization is the same as standing up after, and yet they are not the same. Once you find intimacy with vast emptiness, the genuine Tao or Way. Your act of standing will be the act of the entire universe standing. And in the same act, you will be standing alone. The Tao, the way, is not to be found simply in your relative world of trying and not trying, efforting and not efforting, knowing and not knowing, attaining and not attaining. To direct yourself towards something, or having a gaining idea, is to postulate attainment. Postulation thus replaces attainment and true attainment is out the window. You are left clinging to something conceptual. So what is this pointing at? Anyone? How do we, how do we hold wanting or gaining ideas having a goal wanting to stop the madness how do we direct ourselves I love this uh, I love the story because it's you know joshu and uh, is so is so earnest he's like well hey <laughs> if, if ordinary like how do I how do I do ordinary mind? Should I like, you know, can I like, should I, how do I direct myself? Should I be directing myself towards it? It's like, well, if you do that, you're going to miss the point. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? I love the, the feeling in it of, of you know, just perplexed, you know, perplexed confusion, right? this This question, how do I do this? How do I make space for all of my experience, including the ones, the parts of my experience, that are absolutely abhorrent to me? How do I make space for all of the experience of this world, including the parts of the world that are abhorrent to us? Does making space mean allowing it? Does it mean being complacent? What do you say? Jacob.
0: I don't know, I think the first step would be to make sure that you're observing that those things are arising and not running after any of them and following them. But not ignoring them, but just Mm -hmm. making sure that you are witnessing what's going on. Thank you. Peter. Also think you know comes to mind the the concept of grasping, you know, really trying to cling to something, mm-hmm. and I think letting go and just absorbing it uh, has more more profound impact for me personally.
2: Because I'm i like
0: the hyperachiever, achiever, you know, like constantly trying to excel, and trying to. And the more I let go, the more it, it, it I arrive.
1: Thank
2: you. A a big part is being open to the possibility. Even, I don't have have a lot of success of changing how I feel or think by force. It doesn't seem (laughs) to work very well. Despite great efforts. Um, And, you know, so sometimes when you're just like, I just can't live in a world where people allow, you know, Something you know, some and I was like, just say, is that true? It's like, is 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 there any possibility that my whole body could allow this, and not even try to answer the question, yes or no? And then I think our bodies learn, like even if we are sitting and feeling like it's a waste of time or whatever, our bodies learn like okay, this is possible, maybe,
1: maybe it's possible. Yeah, you know, when, when sitting in zazen, oftentimes in beginner's instruction, uh, you might hear something like, while you're sitting, you might, you know, an itch might arise, right? You might feel an itch. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, there might be like little mucus flies trying to lick your eyeballs. This is like a Tasahar experience. and you know don't move that's the instruction don't move (laughs) what do we normally do what's our normal normal way of being when we're walking around kind of taking care of ourselves thinking you know we're taking care of our life and we're what do we normally do when an itch arises we scratch it (laughs) what do we do when the mucus fly lands on our eyeball (laughs) Or when the mosquito flies and lands on our arm and, you know, whatever things we do, right? What does it look like to do this radical practice of not uh, not doing anything? Have you all had this experience where in Zazen you have an itch and you don't scratch it immediately? Maybe you just watch it for a while become intimate with it. You enter fully the experience of it. This is such a simple, simple example, right? Who is afraid of having an itch every once in a while? Like none of us, really, right? I mean, on the scale of things in the world that we're bothered by, having an itch is probably one of the smallest things we can think of. And yet, when we sit in Zazen and we have a terrible itch, and we just are maddened by it. Okay, I want to scratch it. No, no, just, just breathe. You be close? What does it mean to be intimate with it? <sighs> <laughs> right? And you go through this whole process over the simplest thing. This is practice. Yes, sure.
2: Somewhere in the,
0: in the dialogue, there's a progression towards the acceptance tendency to grasp Mm. what you observe after you observe and to try to come into the The acceptance that we're always going to try to grasp Mm. and I think the acceptance that everybody else is always trying to grasp and it's okay.
1: And and, uh, I would add, even if it's not okay, if there's some part of you that's like screaming, this is not okay. How do you hold that too? Because what choice do we have? Yes, Patrick.
0: Um, I have a uh, a little bit of an issue with heights.
1: Heights? Heights, Yeah.
0: big, vast, and so the first time I went to the Grand Canyon, Mm -hmm. um, I was bordering on a panic attack. Because I had a robbing dog on a leash (laughs) <laughs> and, but it occurred to me, and it still occurs to me, the Grand Canyon could not care less about that. The Grand Canyon is the Grand Canyon that doesn't care about that. But that doesn't make it okay for me to go walk off the edge. And it wouldn't have made it okay for me to let the panic attack drive me back to my car and miss this vast possible mm-hmm. thing. And I think finding practice is finding that spot. Yeah. The spot where this thing is bigger than me, doesn't care about me, it's but I still don't need to walk off the edge and I still
1: don't need to run. Right. Right. How do you hold that in dynamic that dynamic tension? Where do you find yourself on the spectrum?
0: is yes. um, yeah. it lots speaking Seems like me is going to take tremendous effort to, to do nothing. A huge amount of energy. It's the hardest thing yes. uh, I can muster. Um, and even mm-hmm. sitting uh I guess I'm holding that tension but this is beautiful. You said doing nothing. It's like this blatant contradiction. How can you do something? If you're doing nothing, you're doing something, aren't you? Well, what's going on there?
1: It's like think not thinking.
0: Right. <laughs> it, it, even Zazen is just to, to make it concrete as a reflection it kind of that. It takes all this effort to keep my spine straight and to breathe naturally.
1: Yeah, whatever that means. That's a great. It's like what does like that's the curiosity that we bring to our zazen. Oh, I've been given the instruction to pay attention to my posture, to hold my posture, but not in a rigid way, but not in a too relaxed way. Like what's the what's the middle way? Right. What does this mean to do this? To open that yourself to that question. What is my experience? Right. Oftentimes we're not there for our experience in a way. It's kind of weird, right? We have our experience, but we don't let ourselves let it sink in. We actually just react to it, and we're on to the next experience. And it's so fast. Life is fleeting constantly. That's why on the Han, it says, Great is the matter of birth and death. Wake up, wake up. This moment. Don't waste time. So this strong encouragement to be here in your life, experiencing it, And all of it is mind. Ordinary mind is Buddha. Don't think that Buddha is outside this very mind, this breath, this body, this experience. Where's awakening? What is it to be awake now with everything? You'd say, oh the conditions weren't right, I was you know sleepy, I was hungry, I was lonely, I was tired, (laughs) right? All of those things. And is it the wrong time for uh, waking up? Because ultimately you can wake up into anything that you're doing. If you're, uh, I guess maybe if you're conscious or if you've practiced like, you know, dream yoga, you can do it while you're sleeping. Okay, I'm gonna continue with the stories. Cause I do, Need to get. The, I'll, <laughs> this is my last Dharma talk here for a while, <laughs> so I need to get through these. <laughs> Another comment from Yamada. Ordinary mind. What is that? It is nothing but our ordinary consciousness. Our ordinary, everyday life. It is just getting up, washing your face, eating breakfast, going to work, walking, running, laughing, crying. The leaves on the trees, the flowers in the field, whether white, red, or purple. It is birth. It is death. That is the way. We do not even have to use the word mind. The ordinary is the way. When you are truly one with something, you are one with yourself. We find Dogen giving us this teaching in his Fukan Zazengi. Stop the activities of mind consciousness, stop thinking in concepts and ideas and cease desiring to become a Buddha. Two more. A monk asked Matsu in all earnestness, what is Buddha? familiar? Matsu replied, no mind, no Buddha. There's a sequel to this. A seeker asks Matsu, why do you say ordinary mind is Buddha? Matsu replied, to stop the children from crying, to stop the baby from crying. Just this ordinary mind is Buddha. The seeker asked, After the crying stops, then what? Matsu said, no mind, no Buddha. What is this pointing to? Is it pointing to impermanence? Is it pointing to the fact that our conceptual understanding can't actually reach reality? Do we walk around holding on to this ordinary mind as Buddha, as a solve that's going to get us through the next tragedy? No mind, no Buddha. The uh, Zen master at the end of the Genjo Koan, Master uh, Baucha from Mount Mayu, I'll, I'll get to that story who was, you know, who was fanning himself, some of you know this koan. He has a verse for this particular uh, case, No Mind, No Buddha. He says, snowflakes are beautiful because they are gone. Flowers come after, also gone, gone before they arrive. Rocks, lakes, stars, all that is mind, all long departed, beauties of absence. And then the final Matsu story that I have today. Great Master Matsu was seriously ill. The director of the temple asked him, Master, how are you feeling these days? The great master said, Sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. And he died shortly after that. Sun-faced Buddha and moon Face Buddha are two Buddhas know, um, that belong to, there's a list of, I think there's a thousand Buddhas. Maybe it's in this world system. sun Face Buddha is, um, which one is sun Face Buddha? sun Buddha is the one who, oh, is the 222nd. Buddha of this thousand Buddha uh, consortium. Moonface Buddha is the 858th Buddha of these thousand Buddhas. So there's two of these Buddhas and Matsu refers to them in this, his answer to "How are you doing these days?" Matsu knew he wasn't you know, he wasn't deluded about his condition and what was going to happen to him, to all of us. So he answered sun face Buddha, Moon Face Buddha. Sun face Buddha it turns out lives it, sometimes it says that sun face Buddha lives in eternity. What that means is actually eighteen hundred years. <laughs> That's his lifespan, sun face Buddha. Eighteen hundred year lifespan. Moon faced Buddha, on the other hand, lives only for one day and one night, for a span of twenty four hours. So, Matsu is referring to Sun Face Buddha, Moon Face Buddha. One Buddha lives 1800 years. We might say, oh, that was a really long life. Moon Face Buddha lives 24 hours, just one full day. Oh, what a short life. What is the expression of Sun Face Buddha? And what is the expression of Moon Face Buddha? And are their expressions any better or worse than one another, depending on their lifespan? We always think we want more time. Of course we do. Everything we know, everything we experience happens over the course of passing time. When we think the time is running out, what happens? Sometimes we get frantic. We lose ourselves. We're unable to pay attention to the moment because we're concerned. But sometimes when we realize that our time is running out or that we don't even know if our time is, I mean, definitely time in our human life is always running out. We have no idea how much time we have left alive in this world sometimes recognition of the limited nature of our experience when we sit especially one breath inhalation exhalation one breath inhalation exhalation What happens when we fully enter into the one breath, not prioritizing the first breath of zazen over the last breath of zazen? What is it to fully enter into this present moment, which is boundless and fleeting? It includes the entire universe, When we breathe in, can we breathe in the entirety of this universe? When we breathe out, may we breathe out, completely exhaling, all grasping, all planning, all thoughts of gain and loss. And then when we breathe in again, maybe we feel gratitude. Shishin Wick comments on this particular case, Sun Face Buddha, Moon Face Buddha. He says, Sometimes one is well for many years. Sometimes one is sick for many years. Sometimes one gets sick and recovers quickly. Sometimes one never recovers. When feeling well, we're the well Buddha. Feeling ill, we're the ill Buddha. Don't become attached to the body, but at the same time, Don't abandon it. Here's that middle way. Don't be attached to the mind, but at the same time, don't abandon it. Be peaceful, but don't seek some absolute state of peace. Sun face Buddha, moon face Buddha, so tell me, how is your health these days? Going back to uh, Master Bao Cha of Mount Mayu. His commentary on this case, he composed a verse. Listen, I will tell you the good news. You are going to die. You don't have to get everything fixed, figured out. It's not up to you. You're off the hook, dead one walking. You only have to be present to the sky's shining faces. If you say, no time soon, I hope, you might as well be dead already. 1,800 years is the same as just one day. Right now, the only eternity there is, they're just the same. So I keep talking about Master uh, Bauches fanning himself, so I'll, I'll read that section from the Genjo Koan. Then Master Baocha of Mount Mayu was fanning himself. A monk approached and asked him, Master, the nature of wind is permanent. There's no place it does not reach. Why then do you fan yourself? Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanent, Baocha replied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? Asked the monk again. The master just kept fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. And then Dogen continues. The actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital path of its correct transmission, is like this. If you say that you do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, You will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind the nature of wind is permanent because of that the wind of the buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river so what is this effort that we're making are we to direct ourselves towards it or not what do we do when someone says, well, if you direct your effort towards it, you're going to miss the point. What am I supposed to do with that? How do I effort in an effortless way? How do I bring my whole attention? This is really a question in Zazen. That we, Every period that we're sitting Zazen, we're asking this question. I'm bringing my whole body and mind and my awareness to every single thing that's happening in my experience. While I'm sitting, I'm focusing on everything (laughs) but in particular I'm watching my posture I'm maintaining a posture why why would I maintain a posture why am I focusing on my breathing is it just to clear my mind of the other thoughts that the monkey mind that comes in to just oh, I'm gonna return to counting counting is very helpful when trying when you have a monkey mind (laughs) right Focusing on your posture. It's focusing on what's happening in the moment. Apparently, after the uh, that exchange, I didn't realize this until I was looking into, until I was preparing this talk. Uh, I just knew the Zen, the Genja Koan story of Master Bao che, uh, Bao che fanning himself. I didn't realize that the, that he actually says something after the monk bows. I was going to share because I, I was tickled this is setting up uh, this is setting up for next week's talk Ma, uh, Mayu Bao baocha said after the monk bows deeply he says useless teachers and monks there are a thousand of them what good are they for <laughs> so I had one more thing I was going to read, but I can't seem to find it. I didn't know what um, I wanted to share these stories as a kind of as a to use them as a, a framework for everything that I've said in the other talks, parts one and two. But also, these stories of Zen. They're stories in in my mind, you know, they're family stories. These are my ancestors. And all the commentaries that happen after, and some of the commentaries I read to you were from the ninth century, some of them were from this century. All of these practitioners, all of these devotees of the way, do they have the right answer of what should be done? Does anybody have the right answer of what should be done? That everyone's gonna agree on? <laughs> no. So the, deti- the details of what should be done, where do those come from? Because it's not that we want to just give up asking the question, what can we do? Right? Sometimes Zen is, uh, the the criticism of Zen is uh, leveled against Zen that it's uh, passive. It leads to some kind of passivity. Just sitting. Oh, the world is falling apart. I'm going to go sit. Find my peace spot. Right? That's not the point of Zen. To peace out. I think I said that in the first talk I gave. But the point is, is to get really, really in touch by being quiet. Really radical practice, by being quiet for a moment. One breath, from one breath zazen to spending a full day, which you can do next Sunday. Spending a full day of coming back to body and mind, coming back to breath of this moment, right? That we give ourselves this opportunity why? Are we making a Buddha? We're giving ourselves this opportunity so that we can actually ask the question, what is the source of the activity that does come? When I step off the cushion and go out into the world and I act on the behalf or the benefit, for the benefit of beings, where, does this, where is the source? Where am I coming from? Am I coming from anger? Am I coming from greed? Am I coming from delusion? And if I am, can I pause and maybe not act? Maybe I can go sit some zazen and get to know that anger, get to know that greed without turning away from it because it's in all of us. So how do I come from a place when I'm acting? How do I come from a place that's not reactive? From a place of Settledness, and sometimes we can't, right? Sometimes we can't do it. We have to act, and it's not from a settled place. Ordinary mind is the way. Do we beat ourselves up? Do we uh, strive to do better? Of course we strive to do better. This is built into our practice. We act under the you know, from the best place we can possibly act from. We try. And sometimes it's clouded over. We can't see it. We can't touch into it because we can't breathe, maybe. So when that happens, what do we do? How do we turn towards the blank wall? that we turn towards and look, turn the light that's usually shining outward. What's this? What's that? Ooh, I like this. I like that. I don't like this. We turn that light inward and we drop all our conceptions and we just be with what is directly, as directly and as unsullied by the commentary, the the running commentary of likes and dislikes, the world according to me, you set that down for a breath for 35 minutes for a day you see it comes back in right oh there it is again right do we get angry do we push it away no we invite it in we say oh there it is that knee that wants to control everything of course you do it's okay we all do this right we don't need to extricate it from ourselves actually when we extricate it from ourselves we think we're extricating it from ourselves, what are we really doing? (laughs) So we hear a bunch of things, and I think you're all saying the same thing. We push it underground, yes. So, I wanna end, I went on longer than I intended to, as I always do. (laughs) Uh, I wanna end with with a Thich Nhat Hanh poem. And I didn't really talk about what's going on for me as I move into my own transition, um, but you know, it's all—it's all there. It's all in everything that I've said. So I apologize if this poem feels like it's coming out of nowhere with relation to the rest of my talk. I think it actually is quite uh, apropos. This poem is called "Contemplation on No Coming and No Going." This body is not me. I am not limited by this body. I am life without boundaries. I have never been born, and I have never died. Look at the ocean and the sky filled with t- with stars, manifestations from my wondrous mm-hmm. true mind. Since before time, I have been free. Birth and death are only doors through which we pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are a game of hide and seek. So, laugh with me, hold my hand, let us say goodbye. Say goodbye to meet again soon. We meet today, we will meet again tomorrow. We will meet at the source Every moment, we meet each other in all forms of life. So, no coming, no going. And as we chant in the Heart Sutra, no birth and no death, no delusion, no realization. Just practice.